Today on Against the Grain, commodification is essential to capitalism, turning the necessities of life, including education, water, and healthcare, into products for sale. But even under capitalism, there are periods when the drive to commodify is particularly intense, and other periods when there's pushback against commodification. Political economist Christoph Herman discusses the origins of the concept, how commodification works, and what life after commodification might look like. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Production for profit, or commodification, is the hallmark of the economic system we live under. Are there limits, natural or otherwise, to what can be commodified under capitalism? And what would an alternative system based on production for use look like? Those are questions taken on by Christoph Herman in the Critique of Commodification, Contours of a Post-Capitalist Society. Herman teaches in the History Department at UC Berkeley. How do you define commodification, Christoph? And where does the term come from? A lot of people assume it comes from Marx, but you indicate that it actually doesn't. Yes, so that was uh, a surprising thing uh, for me when I started to think and to research and, and look at the literature. Uh, commodification is a fairly new term. Uh, it became popular in the 1970s academic discourse and interestingly in, in uh, English-speaking literature. Uh, initially uh, invented uh, by Marxist scholars, uh, usually as part of a general uh, critique of capitalism. Uh, in the 1980s, the term was then picked up by other scholars outside the Marxist uh, camp and it became uh, used more broadly. Uh, often then uh, by these non-Marxist scholars, they uh, typically use the term uh, to criticize certain aspects of capitalism, um, uh, specifically certain uh, forms of exchange. Uh, for example, uh, one, uh, uh, the one example that comes up in the literature that is often discussed is prostitution as commodification of the body. More recently, uh, the sale of, of kidneys in the literature, there was also a discussion about uh, should babies uh, be sold. Uh, in, in the book, what I'm doing is I connect back to the initial uh, Marxist approach and use commodification more as a general critique of capitalism. Uh, my argument is commodification has generally uh, negative effects, not only uh, in specific cases. Uh, I define commodification as subjugation of use value to market value. That's the technical terms, technical terms also associated uh, with uh, the Marxist uh, literature. What that means is that we see 
what happens with commodification is that the usefulness of a good or service or resources, the usefulness in satisfying a human need or a bundle of human needs uh, is, is uh, subjugated, is marginalized in a sense and, uh, uh, and put back uh, in favor of uh, market value, which means the intention to make a profit. Commodification uh, means profit, profit over needs. That's essentially uh, the argument that I make in the book. Uh, profits over needs that has then a range of uh, negative effects. So following from that Marxist or materialist critique, can you give us some examples of what's wrong with commodification? There are a number of examples. One example, for example, when we when we're here in the United States, uh, when we think of, of healthcare, the fact that we have close to 30 million uh, people in the United States that are not covered by healthcare because here, uh, more than than in other advanced capitalist countries, healthcare is a commodity, which means that only those have access to healthcare that are able to pay for them. Other countries uh, deal with that uh, uh, by establishing a public uh, healthcare system. And of course, in the U.S., we have also have yet the discussions about the single uh, payer system. Uh, but it's not only those uh, who are uh, excluded from healthcare. It only it also means, for example, uh, that uh, we have pharmaceutical companies, uh, in the sense, bombarding uh, rich countries with uh, new drugs for all kinds of uh, real or often also imagined diseases, where we have large parts of of the world that have no access. Uh, to pharmaceuticals and drugs, specifically drugs uh, that uh, would help them with conditions that are specific to these regions of, of the world, what in the literature are uh, called uh, tropical diseases. Uh, we can see it now uh, that the same problem with uh, the COVID vaccines. Uh, we try to persuade people in rich countries to get vaccinated, well, large parts uh, of of the globe still don't have any access to these vaccines. Right? Uh, another example here, if we stay uh, in, in uh, the healthcare sector in the United States is that uh, uh, it's very difficult uh, for, for many people, even if you uh, have health insurance, to get therapy. Uh, whereas it's very easy uh, to get uh, drugs, to get uh, uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, and one outcome of, of this commodification is also that we have the opioid crisis, that we have people uh, that uh, actually get sick uh, uh, of uh, taking uh, opioids uh, rather than uh, having uh, therapy. Many, many other uh, examples when we go to agriculture, to food, housing, the fact that we have so many people 
uh, in the Bay Area and other parts of the country that don't have access to housing because they don't have money. At the same time, we have uh, apartments that are not used, condos or in, in San Francisco that, that are empty. This is the result of an economy that the main uh, goal of which is to make profits and not to satisfy social needs. Needs are only satisfied to the extent it, that it can be done while uh, also making profits. You distinguish between three types of commodification, formal commodification, real commodification, and fictitious commodification. What are the differences between these types? Uh, formal commodification, this is uh, one step back. Uh, what I also argue in the book, and, and this specifically relates to a lot of the literature people that uh, used commodification and discuss what commodification means. Uh, in the book, I make the argument that commodification is a process rather than a specific state of affairs that we can say, okay, we have to pay for something uh, and, and therefore it's a commodity. What they, what, in order to understand uh, this process, I distinguish between three forms, formal, as you mentioned, formal, real, uh, fictitious commodification. Uh, formal commodification is the start of this process. The start of this process uh, means that a good service, a resource is given a price and sold on a market. Uh, but this is only, and most of the literature, uh, by the way, stops here. That's what they, what they uh, uh, understand this commodification and discuss uh, as commodification. Uh, but what I'm doing is, uh, I argue that's only the start of a process. Uh, this process ends with uh, what I call real commodification. And what real commodification means is that the service, the good, and the way uh, it is produced is changed, is altered in order to make uh, the commodity uh, something that is profitable. To make it profitable, often uh, the way, uh, it, the, the, the quality, the materiality, uh, and the way how social needs uh, are satisfied uh, is uh, change, changed uh, specifically uh, to make it profitable. Uh, one example, when we think uh, food, for a long time, most food that we buy is commodified in the sense that we have to pay for it. We, if, if, even if we go to a farmer's market and uh, we buy vegetables, uh, the fact that we pay for it uh, means uh, that it is a commodity. It is formally commodified. But uh, if it's grown by a local farmer uh, uh, in a sustainable way, uh, this act does not necessarily impact the product, the vegetables, the fruits, and all these other things. When we have large agricultural corporations uh, that use uh, farm outputs uh, uh, and uh, reconfigure them uh, uh, to create these new products like uh, breakfast cereals. 
then we are talking about real commodification. Uh, here, what used to be uh, fresh uh, food, uh, farm products, are, are transformed, uh, reassembled in a sense in a chemical process to create no new products like uh, breakfast cereals, which can then be sold for high profit breakfast cereals, uh, inputs, uh, the, the, the cost of the inputs uh, are less than a third of the price. So that's, it's, that's why it's also, by the way, it's considered a high margin uh, product. Uh, fictitious commodification uh, I use for processes uh, that were introduced in the public sector. In the public sector where uh, users not necessarily uh, pay for the product. Uh, and there is not necessarily a, a, a profit motive, and in many cases, uh, no competition. What we have seen in the last decades through a process uh, that is often, uh, goes often under the label new public management, the introduction um, of uh, mainly quantitative output indicators. Uh, that I argue in the book have a similar effect to uh, when, when we introduce prices uh, and competition and uh, the profit uh, motive. Uh, an example uh, for uh, fictitious commodification that we have that I am confronted with are student evaluations of teaching. Uh, every if you teach at the college or the university, uh, I think almost all uh, universities, at least I'm aware of, uh, do that. At the end of the semester, students uh, evaluate faculty. They fill in a standardized questionnaire where they uh, can uh, give faculty marks. Uh, in, in our case at, at UC Berkeley from one to seven, and the administration then thinks that this is a measurement of the quality of my and my colleagues' teaching. Of course, we know that the students uh, uh, evaluate uh, many things, but not the quality of teaching. They usually, it depends if they like you uh, or, or they don't like you. Other uh, uh, measurements that were introduced in a similar way, then creates pressure uh, in the public sector that are similar to the pressures uh, providers uh, experience in the private economy where they are confronted with competition and with shareholders who wants them uh, to make a profit. Political economist Christoph Herman is my guest. We're discussing his book, The Critique of Commodification, Contours of a Post-Capitalist Society. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, Christoph, while commodification has marked the history of capitalism since its inception, what has led to the intensification of production for profit since the 1970s? Commodification, I think, and, and, and I make, again make the argument, uh, has intensified uh, since the 1970s along with neoliberalism. Commodification is 
uh, one feature, one important uh, feature of neoliberal restructuring that we have seen in the past three uh, to four uh, decades. Uh, there are several developments to this process. In, in one important uh, development was privatization, uh, privatization of public companies, nationalized companies, nationalized industries, especially uh, in Europe and uh, uh, parts of the developing world, Latin America, not so much in the United States because the United States never had a large uh, public sector. Uh, here, uh, the main person uh, that is as associated with this policy is Margaret Thatcher in, in Britain, uh, uh, came into power in the late 70s, 80s, sold off basically almost everything uh, the British uh, government owned. Uh, similar developments also uh, very dramatically, of course, Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, Soviet Union, after uh, the breakdown of communism, major wave of, of commodification. All these public goods became uh, uh, public companies, uh, became public infrastructures, became private uh, facilities. Another uh, policy that, that pushed uh, for commodification here specifically uh, also in Europe is liberalization. Liberalization is, is a little different from privatization uh, as it not necessarily means that uh, companies become uh, privately owned, but what it means, public monopolies are abolished and even if they, these companies are still publicly owned, they are forced to compete with, it, with each other and to make a profit. Uh, interestingly, in the United States, we still have uh, a public monopoly in the postal sector. We no longer have that in Europe, and that getting rid of that monopoly, uh, I argue in the book, is also part of this uh, process of uh, commodifi commodification. In some cases, uh, we have uh, the creation of internal markets. Uh, here, British healthcare, uh, British National Health Service was, for example, starting in the 1980s, remodeled even so. It's still public, public sector. Uh, they started to create uh, quasi-markets where uh, hospitals are supposed to compete for patients. doesn't work that well, uh, as, as we know. And these uh, quantitative uh, output measurements that were introduced uh, in connection with uh, new public management. Another important area where we have uh, seen intensified uh, commodification is uh, austerity. Uh, this idea that the government should not make debt, uh, should reduce it debt, uh, again, 1980s here in the United States, Reagan, uh, uh, who then, by the way, increased, of course, the debt, but nevertheless, uh, as a result of this austerity uh, obsession, what happened is that they started to cut back welfare state, welfare state uh, measures, which also, to some extent, 
make people less dependent for markets and, and uh, money income and therefore have a decommodifying effect, austerity, uh, uh, capex in welfare states also uh, led to an acceleration of uh, commodification in uh, the past uh, decades. So would it be fair to say then that commodification is not something that has we've seen as a sort of straight line, but in the case of Europe, you had, as you've described, the privatization commodification of, of public goods since the Thatcher years, but that those goods that had been brought into the public realm had previously been private and had been nationalized following World War II. So, so in other words, some things were decommodified and later recommodified. Exactly, and what we see is this continuous struggle about the and recommodification. Uh, one uh, response, uh, decommodification, was precisely because uh, even politicians, uh, or usually social democratic politicians, saw that certain things uh, didn't work in the private sector. Uh, one example, housing. Uh, I come uh, from Vienna City in Europe with, with this long tradition of public housing. About the third of the population still uh, lives uh, in public housing. This goes back to right after the First World War, 1920s, 1930s, uh, uh, where Vienna, where they started and built public housing for working class family, families in, in, on, on a large uh, scale. Uh, of course, what we would need in the Bay Area today to make this connection is large public housing projects. That's, in my view, uh, the only uh, uh, viable response to the housing crisis and the failure of housing markets, the commodified version of housing. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, uh, so we had waves, in a sense, over the long, hi long history of capitalism, over the, the, the 20th uh, century, uh, and hopefully uh, we're going to see soon a wave a struggle for more uh, decommodification. In particular, I, I, I think uh, it would be very, very important when we think about the environment and ecology, right? So that we have uh, find uh, a way, find sustainable uh, housing, sustainable public housing, uh, sustainable uh, public transport in order uh, also to to deal with the ecological crisis uh, that we that we are facing. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with Christoph Herman about his book, The Critique of Commodification: Contours of a Post-Capitalist Society. That's published by Oxford University Press and at AgainstTheGrain.org. You can find a link to that book. Christoph Herman teaches in the history department at UC Berkeley. 
So I wanted to ask you about the economic historian Karl Polanyi, who is one of the crucial theorists of commodification. He wrote about the Spinemlin system in the UK in the 18th century, which was a, a social safety net of sorts, that how its abolition propelled the commodification of workers' labor. In other words, that workers who had benefited to some degree from the social safety net were then forced to sell their labor for a wage. Can you tell us about Polanyi's contribution and how it helps us understand the key role of commodification in capitalism? Yes, so Polanyi, uh, along with uh, Karl Marx, uh, are, is one of the main thinkers uh, in, in, in this area related to commodification. And he was an, an, a very early uh, critique of commodification. And uh, whereas Marx uh, focused his critique on uh, the commodification of labor and the resulting exploitation of the working class. Polanyi, uh, his critique of commodification was much broader. Uh, in addition uh, to labor, uh, 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 he also, in, in his main book, The Great Transformation, he specifically criticizes uh, the commodification of money and the commodification of land. Uh, commodification of labor, uh, he makes the argument uh, that in order for labor to become a commodity, uh, it all, all kinds of decommodifying uh, effects, decommodifying developments, institutions that decommodify labor had to be abolished, including, uh, as you mentioned, this 18th century kind of welfare sta state, Spimhamlet. So only when the poor didn't have access uh, to uh, poor relief were they willing to sell their labor power to a, cap to a capitalist in a factory. Initially, of course, uh, in the early 19th century, long work days, 16 hours more, child labor, and, and very poor working and uh, living conditions. Uh, Polanyi also then, well, what I find uh, it, Polanyi's approach, uh, what makes it so interesting is that he also early on uh, criticizes commodification of land. Uh, today we could uh, see that as a commodification of nature and, and similar to his argument about labor, he says, without regulation, without limit to commodifications, what will happen is uh, land is overexploited, like labor is overexploited, and uh, nature is uh, destroyed. Uh, Polanyi then argues that society, he, by the way, he, he also calls these uh, commodities, fictitious commodities, because he argues that they were never made for exchange on markets. Uh, he, he then uh, also makes the argument that the society has kind of an automatic uh, reflex uh, to uh, limit the intrusion of markets. 
uh, what he calls uh, the double movement uh, that uh, for society to survive this intrusion of the market, this subjugating, subjugation to markets, to profits, uh, it, it necessarily develops a response, it struggles against it. In his book, he sees what happened specifically uh, in the 1930s up to the Second World War and during the post-war period, uh, the response, this more regulated, partly the commodified form of capitalism uh, is uh, what Polanyi had uh, expected. What Polanyi didn't see is the return of the market, the return of commodification in the uh, 80s, uh, 90s. Uh, uh, and hopefully, as, as we are currently at the conjuncture where we see again a movement uh, as in the 1930s, in the post-war decades against uh, commodification, against the market, uh, a movement perhaps that goes even beyond what we have seen during the post-war period uh, as a form of decommodification and aims uh, to a new society uh, that uh, is, is uh, where the main goal becomes the satisfaction of social needs rather than profits, so something that goes even beyond uh, what we have seen uh, during the post-war period. For Polanyi, this idea of a double movement, of a kind of backlash, that a push to commodify further engenders, the idea that the more dire things become, the more people are exploited, the more nature or land is commodified, that at some point there will be a backlash and that it will be strong enough to force decommodification. In some ways presumed both something strong enough from below, but also elites who would be willing to say it's time to rein things in. Do you think that Polanyi overestimated this kind of reaction? I think uh, what, what my critique that I also argue in the book is what Polanyi uh, didn't take into account is what Antonio Gramsci has described as hegemony. Uh, it's not enough uh, that we have protests, struggles, fights. We have seen a lot of them uh, since the 2000s. One movement, anti-globalization, anti one movement after the other, uh, Wall Street, 99% or against the 1%. These would all be uh, struggles and developments that Polanyi subsumed under the double movement. Uh, what I think where well, Polanyi didn't recognize it in order to become an effective uh, political uh, process, political movement that is able to change uh, things. Uh, these struggles have to become hegemonic in the sense uh, that uh, they dominate the agenda, uh, that they reach uh, an enough, large enough population uh, that, they, that they have a form of expression, uh, effective political organization uh, in all uh, these things. Unfortunately, uh, I, I, I'm afraid 
we haven't seen that so far. I am hopeful that we will see something uh, in, uh, in the coming years. Um, by the way, it was also in Polanyi what Polanyi couldn't explain. Uh, for example, or what we couldn't, can't really explain is the, the return of neoliberalism in the 1980s, 90s. Uh, in the book, I make the argument uh, this wave of recommodification uh, linked to neoliberalism is precisely uh, was possible because it became a hegemonic project in countries like Britain, in the US, under, under Reagan, and in other parts of the world. So I think to, to here we, we just have to uh, supplement, in a sense, Polanyi's thinking and, and bring in Gramsci and hegemony. The question now, of course, uh, that we are confronted with, how can we build a hegemonic project? Resisting alone uh, is, is not enough. That's something that we have seen. Many people uh, hoped for that. Uh, but over the last two to three decades, we have seen plenty of movement, movements, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately not very effective. To become effective, uh, we need them to become part of a hegemonic uh, uh, movement, a hegemonic process with uh, an effective political organization uh, as uh, a backbone. Are there contradictions within capitalism itself that could limit the drive for commodification and production for profit? Often you hear people point to nature that there are limits that are imposed, but are these really enough under capitalism to limit capitalism's drive to commodify? So in the book, I also have a chapter about uh, limits of commodifications. Uh, one limit uh, is what I call a moral limit. That's when people argue certain things like babies or kidneys uh, should not be sold. Political limits, when we have these political movements uh, that are part of uh, what Polanyi uh, calls double movement, we also have uh, systematic limits. Systematic limits are linked uh, mostly to argumentations by Rosa Luxemburg, who had argued that for capitalism to grow and prosper, it always have, has to uh, intrude on non-capitalist areas in, in her uh, uh, account, mainly countries, uh, the countries outside, uh, the capitalist world or non-commodified uh, uh, spheres uh, that we have uh, in countries. David Harvey, building on, on Luxembourg's work, calls this accumulation by dispossession. But for that to work, we always have to uh, use non-commodified spheres to the extent uh, that they still exist. One example uh, that uh, uh, often that is also talked about is what we're currently seeing with uh, commodifi commodification of nature with pat patenting of DNA uh, and other things as a new way where we can push further uh, for commodification. Uh, another limit 
uh, that is related to the systematic limit is the, an ecological limit. And I think in, in the book I make the argument it, 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 it deserves uh, an own discussion. Uh, what I what here uh, the the main problem is uh, is that when when cap capitalism grows accumulates it uh, in this process it destroys resources natural resources destroys them use them and destroys them uh, and and in in this process uh, of profit making. This can reach a stage where not only those resources that are that are limited, like oil or, or some rare metals, but the ability of nature to reproduce itself becomes in danger. Uh, climate change is currently an example uh, that we are uh, witnessing. Uh, I I think that's actually the most uh, threatening uh, limit, threatening limit for, for capitalism, but I don't think uh, overstepping that limit means the end of capitalism. Uh, what it does uh, to uh, a significant uh, degree, it creates what I call disastrous commodifications. It creates spaces uh, that can no longer or, or only to a very limited extent, be used by people for uh, uh, all kinds of things, societies. Uh, so I think there, there is a real danger. Uh, but disastrous commodification uh, is not something that progressives, uh, that the left uh, wants to wish. Uh, because, uh, I mean, the, the, the political, the, the ecological, uh, political, and, 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 and other consequences will, will be very dramatic uh, uh, and, and something we don't want to see. But there is real danger, ecological uh, commodification resulting in disastrous decommodification. Christoph Herman is my guest. He's a political economist. He teaches in the history department at UC Berkeley. His book is The Critique of Commodification, Contours of a Post-Capitalist Society. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you were just talking about whether there were limits to commodification under capitalism. I wanted to know if you think there are limits to decommodification in a capitalist society, given that commodification is a central process in the capitalist system, should we assume that attempts to decommodify will run up against limits as long as capitalism is around? Absolutely, and I think that's uh, the lesson that we should learn from the post-war period. Uh, I think decommodification, meaning the commodity character, limiting the commodity character, uh, in the case of uh, labor or work, of course it's uh, work time regulations, minimum wages, collective wages, and, and other things uh, that kind of uh, limit the way employers can 
exploit uh, the workforce of their workers. Right? Uh, so, so decommodification and, and public housing uh, would also be, even in, in the capitalist system, public infrastructures would all be uh, examples of uh, decommodifications to some extent, as we have discussed before, we had them during the post-war period, Europe, more than we, we had them here in the United uh, States. Uh, decommodification is, I think, very important. Uh, before I criticize it, I should say that it, it's very important uh, because it provides some sort of space for people to think about alternatives, uh, to, to realize that there is something uh, other than uh, the private sector profits uh, commodities. Yeah? So, th so they are very, very uh, important. But at the same time, uh, in a capitalist system, they can only go to a certain extent. Uh, if labor is fully decommodified, uh, welfare state theorist, perhaps the most uh, famous one, Gosta Esping Andersen, he, he argued uh, in the 1970s, Swedish welfare state almost uh, resulted in, in, in uh, uh, almost full decommodification of labor. But if labor is decommodified, it means there can also be no, no capitalists anymore. So in a, cap, it, a fully decommodified uh, uh, labor will mean the end of capitalism. That will not happen in a capitalist uh, system. Uh, same with other things. If we think public infrastructure, public sectors, uh, uh, as it was expanded in during the post-war period, uh, at the point where these developments start to endanger profit-making, uh, the capitalist class, the elites, the, the uh, related politicians will respond and push them back. And that's exactly uh, what we experienced 80s, 1990s, uh, uh, that we were uh, talking uh, about before. By the way, also interesting, the more space, the more decommodification achieved during the post-war period, the more room, the more space now available for recommodification. Uh, so even countries like Sweden have uh, experienced uh, major uh, waves of recommodifications in the 1990s, uh, 2000s. In the book, I make the argument we have to think behind decommodification. Decommodification, very important, but uh, our goal uh, should not be, uh, or not only be the limitation of markets, profit making, uh, 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 in the sense, the limitation of, if, if I come back to my uh, definition of commodification, the limitation of subjugation of use value to market value. Uh, our response should be the promotion of use value, of usefulness, of satisfaction of human needs against profit making. Well, let me ask you about that then. Can you give listeners who 
may not have come across the term use values, an example of what that means, and then tell us how you see the alternative of what you call a use value society. Uh, a use value, it, by the way, goes way back uh, in classical political economies, not only Marx, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, they all distinguish between use value and exchange value. It was only in the late uh, 19th century with what is called the marginal revolution in economics that use value disappeared. The classical example in the literature is from Adam Smith, uh, who says, uh, compares water and diamonds and says water has a, a large use value. We need it. Human beings need water to survive but a very small exchange value. Until recently, water was uh, plentiful available, so people uh, didn't have or didn't want or couldn't pay for water. Uh, uh, diamonds, in contrast, are not particularly useful for human beings. In some cases we need it, but mostly uh, they are needed for ornaments. But they have a high uh, exchange value. Right? So distinction between goods having uh, exchange value, the price and usefulness, uh, the, the, the ability uh, to satisfy uh, a human need. Uh, with commodification, it's price and profit making that becomes the main motive. Uh, satisfaction of needs only uh, is, uh, is acknowledged as long as it allows the satisfaction of a particular need allows uh, to make profit. That's, by the way, why we have, uh, we are, we have lots of pharmaceuticals in rich countries uh, where people can pay, and we don't have them in, in poor countries where people can't pay. There is a huge need, but as if there is no purchasing power uh, in, in a commodified capitalist economy, uh, that will just be ignored. Uh, in, in my vision of an alternative uh, to commodification and capitalism is to go back and think about how we can uh, create an economy that's, that the main purpose of which is precisely the satisfaction of needs, the promotion uh, of, of use value. Uh, and contrast to earlier uh, models, economies that we have, in, to some extent uh, we could say pre-capitalist economies were uh, economies that mainly uh, were, were, were striving to uh, serve uh, human needs. What I think what we need is an economy that focuses on use value, on satisfaction of needs, but at the same time has a drive, an impetus to improve, improve the satisfaction of needs. So I'm not talking about uh, some uh, crit ecological critics wants us, want us to go back to a subsistence economy. Uh, in contrast to that, my wish is that we should uh, innovate uh, that uh, we should constantly uh, to improve, but improve to satisfy 
uh, improve the satisfaction of our need, to improve the satisfaction of our need, and I should add, to do that uh, in a sustainable, ecological, as little as possible, uh, destructive way. And uh, to think about how such an economy uh, could be built and what are, what are uh, main elements. One element uh, that I think is that we need uh, democratic uh, decision-making processes that reach into the economy. Again, Polanyi was very brilliant in, in pointing that out. In capitalism, we have uh, democracy in the political sphere, but not in the economic sphere. We can't vote for our bosses. We need processes that uh, democratize the economy because I think when it comes to usefulness of goods, products, uh, services, usefulness also always uh, in mind the ecological uh, dimension uh, of these goods and services. Uh, the price cannot decide. What, what, what we can do is that we collectively uh, decide what would be a more useful way to satisfy a certain need. To give you one example, when we think of transport, uh, we have all these cars in the Bay Areas, roads, cars, Bay Areas, and, 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 and other parts of the world. People in traffic, traffic jams, pollution, major, major, major negative effects. Uh, across the region in in the world, uh, wouldn't it wouldn't it make sense to sit down and think about how we can solve the problem of transport uh, in a, a better, more sustainable way? Uh, the answer, perhaps, would be public transport. Let's build an efficient, effective a public uh, transport system. We, it, it would free up space uh, that we could use to build houses, to build playgrounds, uh, uh, parks. Uh, just imagine that. Uh, I don't think it happens because in a commodified capitalist world, the car, we make much, producers, capitalists make much more money with producing cars. Now what we see is electric cars and self-driving cars rather than uh, with uh, public transport. Public transport would be more useful, uh, would have more use value, but unfortunately doesn't have market value. Cars have a large market value in, in a capitalist commodified system uh, uh, and they may innovate in, in self-driving and electric version. But the more useful alternative, in my mind, would be precisely a collective democratic decision process where we arrive at uh, public transport is the better alternative. So use value society would also mean a labor market uh, oriented uh, toward use value contribution to the satisfaction of human needs rather than contribution to uh, companies employers, uh, capitalists making a profit. Christoph Herman, thank you so much for joining me. Okay, thank you.
Christoph Herman teaches in the history department at UC Berkeley. He's a political economist, author of The Critique of Commodification, which we've been discussing. He's also the author of Capitalism and the Political Economy of Work Time. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.